There's something kind of primal, I think, about our fear of infection. You know, television and movies never tire of playing on that fear. Think of Walking Dead or The Strain or Contagion or Outbreak. These are all movies, I don't know about you, but after watching some of these movies, you just feel like going and having a really hot shower because you're, you know, the feeling of things invisible and yet deadly being all around you is something that evokes in many of us quite tremendous fear. We're terrified of contagious diseases. We're terrified of things that, though invisible, might be able to devastate our lives or even life on this planet. And I think it's part of the thing that, that holds that fear for us is their invisibility. The fact that you can't see these little things that are floating in the air. It's one of the many reasons I will not watch documentaries about microbes on skin. You know, the microscopic things that live in your skin and hair. I just can't do it because you just, there's something about the invisibility of it that's ick. Um, and yet, even though these things are invisible, we tend to view the people who bear them, who carry them, who are contagious with them as enemies or threats. It's very easy to identify these threats on television. They usually look like zombies. But outside of horror films, outside of these sorts of movies or television shows, there aren't many diseases these days that hold us in their grip, that terrify us, that make us instinctively fearful of them. Not even the dreaded flu that so many of us have had over, over winter. But I remember, I'm sure many of you do too, that first wave of confusion and fear that followed the first wave of HIV AIDS in the early to mid-1980s. My father is instinctively quite a paranoid man, and he was convinced that all sorts of, there are all sorts of ways apart from unprotected sex that could transmit HIV AIDS. He was convinced that toilet seats could and water fountains could, uh, that drinking water after somebody who had it could. He even thought that mosquitoes might. But there was something about AIDS itself that carried with it when it first broke out a kind of moral stigma. It's not just that somebody had the condition. It's that there was something wrong with them. There was something bad about them. Unlike any other disease that I can think of in my lifetime, there was something about HIV AIDS that terrified people about the bearers of it, that these weren't just unfortunate people who contracted an unfortunate condition. These were people about whom something fundamentally was wrong. So again, I'm, I, I realize I'm sort of referring to a different time and a different place, but I grew up watching the great contests between the Boston Celtics and the L.A. Lakers, the great contest between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. I can remember the shock when people first found out that Magic Johnson, one of the greatest basketball players of his generation, had contracted AIDS. There was something about that, and many of his teammates even began treating him like a pariah, like an outcast. And I think it's with this that we finally begin to get a sense of just how terrifying the skin condition of leprosy was in the ancient world. Leprosy wasn't just an unfortunate skin condition. It was something that defined the person. Leprosy was something that made that person an outcast. It took them out of human society. It left them on the outer of any possibility of love, of relationship, of kindness, of touch. 
In fact, an entire chapter of the Bible, chapter 13 of Leviticus, is dedicated to how to distinguish between leprosy and other similar-looking skin conditions. It's one of these rare chapters of the Bible that actually reads like a medical manual. If it has a little red mark around the side and white hair is going through the little patch of skin, then it's possibly leprosy. If there's no red mark and there's a little bit of black hair coming through the skin, then it's probably something else. You should go consult your GP. Not the GP bit, but the... Uh, priest instead. So there's this entire chapter with how to distinguish between leprosy and other things. Why? Because if you did have leprosy, the social and the religious consequences were potentially dire. Here's what Leviticus 13 says towards the end of the chapter. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn, his head shall be bare, He shall cover his beard and he shall cry out in a loud voice, unclean, unclean, for he shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean. Do you get the idea? He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. You see, cleanness throughout the Old Testament is bound up with the idea of holiness. To be clean means that you can be in God's presence. If you are clean, it means you can be in God's presence. For as God is, so shall the people that gather around God be. The people who gather around God need to reflect God's character, God's nature. This is why in one of the most important verses in the entire Old Testament, the rabbis used to refer to this as the Holy of Holies of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, This is what the Lord says to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. As God is, so shall the people who are around God be. One of the fundamental ideas is that God's holiness is something that can be contaminated. If you bring something that's unclean, that's impure, that's defiled, that's dirty into God's presence, that contaminates, that infects the presence of God. And so all uncleanness needs to be cast out, needs to be thrown to the outside of the camp. And that's especially bound up with diseases like leprosy. And in fact, leprosy is the unclean disease. In so much of the Old Testament, leprosy is synonymous with uncleanness. And this is where I think we begin maybe, just maybe to get a sense of just how powerful today's gospel reading is and just what the scandal that Jesus performs was. I I wonder what struck you most when Charlie read from Matthew chapter 8. Of all the things in those short verses, there's a little time bomb ticking away. There's something that's extraordinary that no reader in Jesus' time would have passed. It would have been scandalous. It would have been extraordinary. I wonder if you picked up what it was. A crowd follows Jesus. It's maybe a little bit surprising, by the way, that a leper was among them, knowing what a leper had to say. What did they have to say? Unclean, unclean, the terror 
of being close to somebody afflicted with that condition. Unclean, unclean. The idea of the leopard being leopard. Leper being among the crowd itself is a little bit shocking. He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. What does Jesus do next? Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Do you notice how redundant those words are? If he touches the guy, he has to reach out his hand, right? I mean, if he's going to touch the guy, he's got to reach out his hand. Why does the gospel writer, and Luke tells us the same thing, why does Matthew say he reached out his hand? Can you believe that Jesus did it? Knowing what this person represents, knowing he's contagious, knowing he's infectious, knowing that he's unclean, can you believe that Jesus reaches out his hand. This is like one of those moments in the movies when everything kind of slows down and the camera zooms in on, I don't know, a finger about to touch a button. You know, you know what I mean? When directors want to draw attention to something that's about to happen and you're supposed to feel all this tension about it. This is what it's like. Jesus reaches out his hand. He's what? And touches the man. I'm willing, he says. Be clean. You see, we have this Crazy idea, I think, that when Jesus performs miracles, that what he's doing is performing magic tricks. That he's waving his hands and he's trying to create a wonder that wows the crowds. But in fact, when Jesus heals, he isn't doing magic. He is demonstrating. He is making visible the truth about God. When Jesus heals, he isn't doing magic. He's making visible He's making clear, he's making apparent the truth about God. So what is Jesus saying about God here? Jesus reaches out his hand, touches the man, and says, be clean. And instead of the uncleanness of the leper infecting Jesus, what happens? Jesus' cleanness, Jesus' holiness, the tenderness the compassion, the mercy that's bound up with that beautiful, beautiful exchange. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus say? I'm willing. The tenderness, the mercy, the compassion that's bound up in that lovely little exchange. Instead of Jesus being infected by this man's uncleanness, Jesus' mercy infects the man. Instead of Jesus being contaminated, Jesus' holiness contaminates the man. And if we keep this in mind as we read the Gospels, you realize the sheer number of times that Jesus does this sort of thing. Whenever someone who is dying or sick or contaminated or even dead comes near Jesus' presence, comes near Jesus' body, the gospel writers go out of their way to tell us on every occasion, and Jesus reached out his hand and touched the coffin, touched the man, touched the woman, and immediately they became well. Just a little bit later in this chapter 8 of Matthew, Jesus visits Peter's house. His mother-in-law is sick and dying. Jesus reaches out his hand and... 
touches her, and immediately the fever left her. In Luke chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly is in the presence of people who are named unclean, and he touches them, and they are healed. Jesus as the embodiment of God's presence. Jesus as the expression of God's holiness. Instead of him being contaminated by the uncleanness all around him, Jesus' own holiness is contagious. He reconciles, he heals, he restores. And shockingly enough, he heals and restores the people that we least think ought to deserve it. There's an extraordinary moment in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is appearing in a synagogue in his hometown. And this is what he says to the people who are there gathered. He says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, for instance, there were many widows in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except for the widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. In other words, there were many widows in Israel, but God sent Elijah outside of Israel to minister to a foreign widow. And then Jesus says, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. That's the reading we had before. And yet none of them was cleansed except for Naaman, the Syrian. God's holiness is contagious. God's mercy reaches out and cleanses and heals and reconciles, but not the people that we expect. What I think is going on here is that Jesus is diagnosing the sin, the idolatry that had taken heart, uh, taken hold in the heart of his nation. What was going on is that they had fundamentally misunderstood what holiness means. So many of Jesus' contemporaries were terrified of losing what they had. They believed that God had given them gifts. They had given, God had given them the law, the calling of being the people of God, the temple, the Sabbath. They were terrified of losing these things. They were terrified of having these things contaminated. They felt that they needed to defend these things against anybody who would take it away from them. Remember this powerful parable that Jesus told about a landowner who's about to go away, and he gives several bags of gold to several of his employees. And he says to them, invest this money, make more of it for me. And one of the employees, he invests the money well, and he gains a healthy return. Another employee invests, maybe not quite so radically, but still wisely, and he again makes a good return. One of the employees takes the bag of gold that his master has given him, and he is so afraid of losing it. What does he do? He buries it. The master returns and says, what have you done with what I gave you? One says, look, master, I gave you, I brought you a healthy profit off the amount that you gave me. Well done, good and faithful servant. The second, the same. The third one says, Master, I knew you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. I was afraid of losing what you gave me. So look, I went and hid the gold in the ground. Here, I protected it. I'm giving back what belongs to you. And the master says, you wicked, you lazy servant. The things that God gives us, God gives us to be squandered. 
the things that God gives us, God gives us to use radically, generously, joyfully, with abandon. Being a member of God's family means being willing to lose it all. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 16, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. The kids are just about to come back in from kids' church. But before they do, I just want to point out to you something quite fundamental, I think, that Jesus does that unfortunately we so often miss. You remember this verse from Leviticus 19 that was regarded as the holy of holies, the center point, the high point of the Old Testament. You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. One of the things that Jesus is doing to the people of his time and to us in our time is he's trying to get us to see God differently, to understand the character of God differently. How does God give? God gives generously without hope of return. How are we supposed to give generously without hope of return? Listen to what Jesus says. Do you do good only to those who do good to you? If so, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies. Do good to those and lend to them, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward shall be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Now listen to what Jesus says. You shall therefore be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. You remember the heart of the Old Testament? You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And Jesus is now turning that inside out. What defines God? Mercy. What is mercy? Folks, mercy is contagious holiness. Mercy is grace that isn't frightened of the presence and the proximity to others. So often we turn on our televisions or we look at our smartphones and we're happy to see the plight, the needs, the concerns, the lives of others. And we're happy to be concerned about them and even moved by them, provided we're on the safe distance of this side of the screen. Think about what happens when you come across genuine need and you find yourself maybe terrified of being pulled down into someone else's life, being fearful that if I help them, it's just going to be the beginning of this long process and it's just going to make so many demands on me, I won't be able to extricate my life from them. We are terrified today of being too close to people that we might find dirty, that we might find too demanding, that we might find infectious. And yet what does Jesus tell us? We who gather in places like this, we are lit by God's light and we take that light out to the world. We who gather in places like this are cleansed by the holy water, not so that we go out and fear being contaminated, but in order to bring God's cleanness to the world around us. We eat God's bread around the table in order that we might then take 
God's presence out to others. There's no cause to be fearful of the presence of others. There's no cause for fear of being contaminated, of losing what God has given us. Instead, God commands us, be merciful. Share generously. Don't be afraid to embrace others. Don't be afraid to eat with others. Don't be afraid to touch others. Because it's by that that God's mercy and God's light is brought to the world. Amen.